Are Michelangelo's impressions actually funny? Yeah, yeah, they're great. Are they? I think they're a hoot. <laughs> you dirty rat. The thing, the idea that a 13-year-old is doing a, what, Cagney impression? The Cagney, yeah, that, that's is, impressive. That's probably the funny part. That, well, I think that was a time and place when people had cultural literacy. I think that's a key part of that, yeah. Yeah, because I, I can't imagine any... Today's youth don't have cultural literacy, as we've learned. Well, there's yeah. too much content. That's Back in the 90s, true. you had to go watch James Cagney movies because there were only 5,000 movies. Now there's... 30,000 movies, and uh, half of them are on Netflix. And 5,000 TV shows, and... Yeah, plus all 4, the TikToks. 4,000 TikToks yeah. and reels. And, and these are all of 185 episodes apiece. And, and what's a book? And they're... they're um, I don't know. I think Donnie finds one in the antique store, though. That's <laughs> totally... Oh, yeah. I've, I've listened to one of those before. <laughs> I'll tell you, I, when we were watching this movie, uh, Becca Reed? turns to me and goes, you're Raphael. And I've never... I felt so owned. Yeah, I was just completely yeah. it was an edgy yeah. moment there. He just got very bodied by my wife. Yeah, uh, for for being a, a sullen little. Is he Dantel or Leonardo? Uh, he's probably Leonardo. Yeah, because he's the boring one. <laughs> <laughs> and now and that uh, makes you Mikey because you're the party animal. You are, so. his, you are a party dude. Uh, yeah, you're too cool to be uh, Donatello. That's fair. <laughs> I appreciate oh. that. You're very welcome. Hello, everybody, and welcome again to Character Building 101 for Dungeons and & Dragons and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, where we discuss the films you'll never discuss if... Oh, I guess it's called the Good Trash Genre Cast, actually. The genre? 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 Yeah, genre, genre, genre cast. Genre cast. Here in Oklahoma. Here. We make a genre cast. The Good Trash Genre <laughs> Cast. We gather around a table, we discuss the films you'll never discuss in a film space course. But we are talking about Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles this week. We are, indeed. And TMNT is very close to GTGC, so you could... You, you know, it's all good. We're talking TMNT this week on GTGC. Yeah, you know it, baby. We're doing our D&D, uh, I don't know. <laughs> there was a thing, but... There might be a chance this comes up in a film studies course, though. There, there, In fact, it has in a course that I've taken. And not just Kung Fu. Wow. I think it would come up in a... Indies. We'll get to it. Yeah, yeah. we'll talk yeah, about yeah. it. There, there, there are a number of ways in which it might. But I'm still Dustin. I'm still Arthur. I'm still Dalton. And I'm not Leonardo, and I'm still glad to be here talking to you guys. <laughs> um, you know, I was a punk. Anyway, I uh, just don't like him at all. There, He's a Boy Scout. He is a Boy Scout. He is. If you uh, like Superman, you like Leonardo. That's right. And if you like Batman, you're a Raphael guy. Right. That's totally true. If you true. like Spider-Man, you're probably a Michelangelo boy. Mm-hmm. Iron Man is Donatello. Yeah, it checks out. Right, man? Yeah, Don't tell us. I thought Donatello is a gadget. Donatello makes gadgets, though. Yeah, but he's not like yes. sleeping with supermodels. That's true. Cool. Okay. Well, I didn't think about that. He's aspect. more like Q from James Bond. Yeah, okay. okay. That's that, fair. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. No, I'll, I'll go with that. You ever think about how, what a good Q Ben Wish is? He's Shuri. Oh, yeah. Okay. okay yeah. yeah. That, that's just Modernize my. it. That's just my my quick digression, having seen uh, No Time to Die recently. What is it? You just ever think about what a good Q Ben Wishaw is? He is good. He's so. I good haven't seen it. No Time to Die, but he is good. Ah, oh, he's great. He's just he's just one of the greats. In case you're tuning into the show for the very first time, friends, this Sorry. is an analysis show, not a review. Not show. Not a Ben Wishaw podcast. Not either. a bit. No, we unfortunately no. <sighs> oh, Welcome damn. to the Good Trash Ben Wishaw cast. <laughs> Shit, that's a spinoff. <laughs> There's a marathon there. <laughs> yeah. Hey, I'm into it. We get a Paddington in. All right. Some Mary Poppins. And as such, with an analysis rather than no, 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 we're not going to let you do it. Uh, we're going to spoil this <laughs> the subway movie. cart has gone off. <laughs> and so, in case you have not seen the original Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film from 1990, uh, we will be spoiling the end of the movie, but we're going to avoid it for the first part of the show. We'll have synopsis. We'll have a uh, quick little reviews. We'll play a little game called Expand the Syllabus, which might more likely involve spoilers of films around. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, then it will, uh, the Ninja Turtles themselves, and then uh, we'll play some kicky music to let you know that we are down to business and in spoiler mode, so that's your Yeah, warning. you'll find out who's whose father at that point in the show. That's right. Uh, it turns out Shredder is the father of a bobsled. That's what's going to happen. That's going to happen. That's going to happen. That's true. That's uh, what happens in this movie. Anyway, with all that, Arthur, can you delight us with a synopsis, please? <laughs> As a mysterious crime wave sweeps New York City, one reporter fights to uncover the truth, only to discover she's not the only one looking for the truth when she meets Leonardo, Donatello, Michelangelo, and Raphael, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You know, Caravaggio gets left out on all this, and I just think that's just unfortunate. I mean, really, truly. Um, but much better choice than Donatello. Yeah. Yeah. But what about Balzac? Huh? 
Well, that's a French novelist. Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> very telling that the female turtle they tried to introduce in live action TV series was uh, Venus de Milo. Oh, yeah. That is telling. That is telling. Yeah, the Renaissance was uh, full of white dudes, just like most art movements that the Western world wants to talk about. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, it was what, Frito? Frito was probably have the only option we would have had. ever actually yeah. seen any of the live-action series? Michelangelo, Donatello, Raphael. And Kahlo. <laughs> yeah. What were you going to say, Dustin? I was just wondering if any of you have actually seen any of that live-action Saban series. No. I remember it, but uh, I was kind of out of the turtle phase at that point. Yeah, I was in. I was always into them, but I don't... Yeah, I it mean, kinda, well, you would have been like... It came and went. 18 when that came out. Was it that Was it that recent? Okay, I didn't realize that. Either. I mean, by I was recent, aw- it was late 90s. Yeah, I was aware of it. <laughs> so it was like 97, probably. Yeah, I, yeah. That, that was a little too before my time. I was exactly seven years old when the cartoon series came out, and so I, I think was... think the 87... I was sold out on the cartoon. I think that that was the one they were running when I was a kid, because, you know, I, I, I'm as old yeah. as this movie. Yeah. Uh, so we, we def... This, this was on VHS yeah. and got played a lot at my house, but... Uh, the cartoon, I, I think I watched this movie more than I saw the cartoon, and I've only seen the sequels in bits and pieces, yep. weirdly. Uh, but I, yeah, I think the 87 one was the one they were running when yeah. I was a kid still. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. um, that ran for like, like six seasons. Ran for quite a while. Yeah. And, and then they didn't come back, I don't think, until they did the Saban series, and then they did the, the, the Nickelodeon, Nickelodeon stuff. series. Yeah. 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 Gotcha. They've got, what a what a robust history they have. It's and really they're, interesting. They're not even that old of a property. But no. Like, They've got just as much rights now, complication stuff as anybody else. Comics? No. I have read an issue okay. of the comics. I think I've read the first one and I've read like a rando yeah. part of the run at one point. You know, I've got that Batman Ninja Turtles mashup, but I haven't actually read it. I flipped through it is all yeah, I've done. Yeah. yeah. I mean gorgeous art. Uh, there I think a, the original art is gorgeous too, from that, that black and white thing that they do with those turtles is really cool. There is an animated film version of the Batman Ninja Turtles as yeah. well. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. So that's fun. God, there's just so um, much Ninja Turtles stuff. There's a lot, and uh, the nostalgia goggles are firmly placed upon our faces, I think. But nope. let's just talk about... Not uh, for me. <laughs> no. Let's... Don't well, let the glasses deceive you. <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to go with you first, Dalton. What do you say in review of 1990s Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? I do think that this is an absolute achievement in puppetry. we got to get that out of the way. This, I, These puppets are incredible. It is up there with the thing, as far as just, like, times the movies made something that looks pretty damn real even though it's just you know like foam and latex and moving mechanical pieces i i think these turtles look great and i think splinter looks great it, it is just wild to me how how much mileage they get out of these things uh, and again you're right there might be a little bit of nostalgia goggles on for how well the puppetry works for me there, there are definitely moments though if you're looking the mouth sink will be off a little bit at times. The eyes will look a little dead occasionally. Enunciation of the word splinter, sadly, from Leonardo is a moment that comes to mind for that. Yeah. Yeah. But I think largely they managed to make these turtle suits look lifelike and to make them have pathos, make you care about them, to make... And our human cast does such a great job of interacting with these things and, and making it seem like they're talking to just regular turtle dudes. Uh, speaking of our, our supporting cast, how great are they? Uh, you gotta love the baby Elias Codius, you know, mm-hmm. one of the greats. Uh, Judith Hogue, I don't really know from anything other than this, but I think, I've always thought she's great. Oh, she's in big love. I'm gonna say she's in Nashville. Oh, okay. So she's still working. Yeah. Hell yeah, good for yeah. her. Uh, but I've always thought she's great in this, and, you know, Elias Codius. Also found out he's on a cop show, really bummed that yeah. that's where he's ended up. Like, he's not still yeah, working a as a character order guy now, yeah. Because he was great in, um, Let Me In. You know, mm. uh, I think that's the last movie I remember seeing him in. But uh, anyway, the, the human cast just does such a good job interacting with these things. Uh, and also, as D- we mentioned last week, you got baby Sam Rockwell giving out cigarettes. Like, that's just funny. Uh, Dustin mentioned that he he spotted Skeet Ulrich in the background as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, off air, we were talking about that. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. Th- there is just such a breeziness to this movie. It's a tight 90 and they really get their money's worth out of those puppets. It it is sort of an achievement for independent filmmaking to to look this good and to sort of predict the next several decades of movie um, of movie making. Like it's again, Batman eighty nine had just come out, so this little independent production sort of saw the writing on the wall and and got with the the times and figured out what was going to be hit uh, going to be a hit at the at the box office. I do think the third act uh, being all fighting is, you know, whatever. It it looks pretty good. Again, the the fighting here is 
as good as it could be considering it's dudes in puppet suits. You know what I mean? Uh, so there's moments that really, really work. I mean, Ernie Reyes Jr. doing doing his backflips as Donatello in that suit. Pretty sick. But th- there's only so much they can do. So it, it really, they push it up to the limit with how much they can pull off in that third act. So I, I did get a little, little yawny there. But I think... Uh, you know, all of the meeting them stuff, like they get through it very quickly, setting up the stakes of uh, of this crime wave, getting April introduced to the, the turtles. It all moves so quick. And we've got the farmhouse sequence that feels like such a, a stock moment from adventure films, the, the, the quiet retreat away from away from combat that we, we get in so many movies. But I, I think that that stuff really works as, you know, character building. Uh, you can see why um, old old Josh Wiesen uh, ripped it off in his, his Avengers movie. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It works. You just you let your characters go out to a farmhouse, Breathe. they're going to vibe. It's great stuff. Um, so again, Dustin's might be right. I might have the nostalgia goggles on a little bit. But I think this works, man. I, I just, I don't think there's anything wrong with it other than that kind of saggy third act, like I said. Mm-hmm. But overall, I just, it hums, man. It's a fun time at the movies. Uh, everybody's uh, showing up and doing what they need to do. The score bops. Mm-hmm. Oh, man, just some really, really great moments with that. So, yeah, I, I, and it just looks great. I mean, it, it has such a, it has such a early 90s, which is to say late 80s look to it that is, you know, sort of just preserved in amber pretty spectacularly, I feel like. Even the the stream uh, or the, the print of it that's on Netflix right now looks great. Uh, it does look really solid uh, as far as uh, transfers from that era go. So yeah, I think this movie's a pretty solid uh, hit. It. The, it's just great. I, you know what's not to like? All right, thank you very much for that, Mister Dalton, Mister Arthur Gordon. Do you like the first Turtles movie? Uh, I do. I think Dalton's right. I, I echo him. I think. I think this. War- I mean, those suits, those those puppets, just work so well. It, it, yeah, it's hard to not realize. I mean, it, it feels like you're watching these four turtles interact. Um, I think Splinter may be a little less so, but I mean, those four turtles really work well and, and come to life in a way that is still effective 30 years, 32 years after the fact. Uh, and, and I think that's really what this movie sings on is that it's just the dynamic. I don't know. There's something about this little engine that could almost that that's really cool. You know, the think of an IP movie me made independently today is just so baffling uh, and so to see something like this that just blew up, I mean, highest grossing independent film of all time for a long time. Yeah, for about a decade. Um, which is, is, I mean, saying a lot. And so I, I think that's really cool. I like the cast. I, I do like Judith Hogue. I think she's great as April, and I like that they anchor it around her in a way that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and she has a good interplay with them. And pretty rare for a movie targeted towards little boys, right? And not something that we yeah. get a lot of in, in sort of comic booky fair. Yeah. And uh, I, I think it's interesting we kind of get this interplay, you know, of Mikey having this huge crush on her, which I think kind of helps with that maybe a little. Um, but Codius is great as, as Casey Jones, and they they get the mask right, which is a lot of fun. Uh, but him just showing up and that that little standoff he does have with the RAF early on is, is a good stuff. time. Yeah, um, cricket, yeah, <laughs> cricket. Nobody knows I mean, how to score cricket. Yeah, <laughs> good, good bit. Uh, it's fun. Um, yeah, I, I like it. I, I do agree. I think that it does kind of slog here and there. I do like that farmhouse scene though. I, I like yeah. the way April kind of navigates that and they let the, do the sketches thing and they cut to each turtle as they're trying to deal with the, the grief of where they're at and what's going on this kind of darkest before the dawn moment in the screenplay uh, it, it is scripting 101 uh, it feels like the stakes are never super high because it is just like a small crime syndicate they're fighting yeah. um, which is another you know weird moment in IP comic book film now to think that oh half the city's not being blown up yeah there's a giant blue light in the in the Michael Bay turtles right yeah 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 I haven't seen either of them yeah, but yeah. I've, I've seen pictures of a blue light yeah, yeah. It, well the it, technodrome it, shows up in the second yeah, one it's the end of the universe in the second movie and it's like uh, everyone's going to be poisoned and die in the first movie in the first one gotcha. but here's like hey these guys are just stealing a bunch of stuff and the cops suck so let's yeah. do it yeah you know and I mean there's something very simple about that and I appreciate and it's got this kind of dark probably a, a little echo of Batman still here, mm-hmm. but it does kind of have this darker tone in comparison to the cartoon. Sure. Um, it's kind of a hybrid of that. I think that in the original comic books, and I think that's, that's cool as well. Um, I, I do, I think it holds up pretty well. You know, I don't know that it's well, something I'd call a masterpiece, but I think it's a solid watch mm-hmm. and the things about it that I don't think or wouldn't have expected to still work, still work really well. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I love this movie. I mean, the Turtles were a huge part of my childhood. But I think, again, 
I don't feel like there's a nostalgia lens there. It's, I yeah. think, pretty easy to look at and show it maybe to a first-time watcher. And they may nitpick stuff, but I think it works. And I think because of how well those turtles work. Yeah, I, I hadn't seen this movie in, I mean... I was definitely a child the last time I watched it. It's, it could be easily twenty years since I've seen this movie, and yeah, so same. it's not it's not like it's it's one I've kept up with. Same. And yeah, so yeah. I'm I'm right there with you. I think it just does kind of work on its own merits. Dustin, what about you? Are are you, do you really are, do you think it's nostalgia goggles? Do you think this works legitimately as a as a movie? What where are you at? I don't care. I ju- I just you love just it. like it. Yeah, I, okay. I, I, and that's fine. I, I do not care. Um, I'm going to make an argument that's legitimately good, but yeah. I I'm fully willing to cop to that. I am just in love with this yeah, series. You're Ten years. Pr- do you see this in the theaters? Yes, I did. Yeah, hell yes, yeah. I did. Yeah, Carnegie Liberty Theater, uh, where I later worked, yeah. and uh, yeah, loved it. And I uh, saw Secret of the Ooze in there, and also Turtles in Time. I mean, I just, yeah, this was. I was right in the demo when all this came down the pike. Now that being said, we've talked a lot about performances. Um, I want to mention, you know, you talk about Ernie Reyes Jr. in the suit, mm-hmm. but Corey Feldman in the voice yeah, of Donatello, re- really I mean, good. Again, really, really works, and all the voice acting. Uh, that's actually sorry. I, I that's uh, Corey Haim. Yeah, uh, Donatello is. Oh. I would have swore it was Corey Feldman. No, you're right. Sorry, I, I I was looking at the puppeteers. Yeah, Corey Feldman is Donatello. He's, he's watched it like 500 times, real. Yeah, knows. I shouldn't have. I, I should have known he knew it. He's really sort of the. <laughs> the come for the king, you better come correct. He's the star turtle, though, right? I mean, as <laughs> yeah. far as voice casting, I goes, think so. Yeah, yeah. There's yeah. nobody else is like a, even close. A name, but everyone else is good. I mean, yeah. and Kevin Clash doing the voice of Splinter. Kevin Clash, who you may or may not know as the voice of Elmo. Yeah, uh, Elmo, so, uh, which is a very very different affectation mm-hmm. for that particular. We will not be doing any Splinter impressions i don't think. I, I don't think that's a great i idea. think that would be inappropriate <laughs> oh <laughs> <laughs> um but here's the thing about the movie that i think really works is that it's really able to strike a sense of tonality because there is a strong distinction between the eastman uh comics mm-hmm. the laird eastman comics and the uh cartoon itself the the cartoon is definitely a children's only kids fun silly you know um the you know michelangelo he's a party dude mm-hmm. and he's green or whatever uh that stuff is real real silly and it's able to toe the line between silly and quite serious uh again with a couple well-placed you know use the word damn by Raphael, i think sort of helps sort of place the uh the the grittiness of the movie but yeah. also just tonality uh, tonality in terms of color palette and i think a choice i didn't look at the uh, film stock that was used if it was uh actually a 16 millimeter film stock i think it's just a cheap 35 that they're shooting on uh for the movie but it it does lend it that like that it, 70s new york it really feel looks a like a a super yeah. 16 stock but it, i mean it, i say it looks like the grain looks like a, a, a six a super 16 stock it seems like the the size and resolution's got to be 35 but um that being said like I, said, I didn't look it up but it really does uh achieve that again uh mean streets uh, scorsese movie kind of new york uh tone there and i think that's part of what really really makes it work the other thing that really makes the movie work is editing the way in which it's able to uh g- parallel um, storylines uh, with various pieces of editing. So you've got things going on in the sewer and Casey's up in the truck. You've got uh, Raphael on top of the house and we've got, or the, the antique store and the rest of the turtles within uh, throughout Raphael going to the movies and meeting Casey Jones for the very first time while uh, Donatello and uh, Michelangelo have like sort of a nice moment in the moonlight waiting for pizza to come in and the way in which they're able to juxtapose. Pizza bit is so good. It's, it's all, yeah, it's really funny. I mean, really well written as far as the script goes. But all of those little pieces that are giving us new additional pieces of uh, narrative information, moving the plot forward, giving us bits of action to keep us from getting too terribly bored, all of that really, really works well. And even in the farm scene, although it's much more um, slowed down once we get to that point, uh, one of the interesting things about that particular moment is it still is an intercutting of this is Leonardo's processing this is Donatello's processing is a little bit of uh, Casey and April there's less Michelangelo stuff it seems to me overall in the form yeah and that's fine but everybody pretty much has an arc for the most part right, like I, it's they get mileage out of that at what is it 15 20 minutes it's not super duper long yeah it feels longer than it is because it's just so slowed down yeah, right it's yeah it's it's so it tonally is with a piece of the rest of the movie but you're right like it definitely takes its time there's so much breath to it. And then the movie has so much stinking heart. It, it's, I mean, yeah. it really, really does. Yeah. 
dealing with like teenage angst and uh, just uh, father supportive kind of stuff with Splinter and the rest of the uh, Turtle gang. Uh, all of that really, really, really works. And uh, to Dalton's point, though, and you could see definitely more impressive martial arts action in without wearing, you know, 85 pound rubber suits. These guys are able to do some pretty amazing kicks. Well, and you spoke to the editing. The editing also does a good job of moving around where the suits aren't going to work right? right they they make it seem pretty seamless as far as the the, the feats that people are able to pull off get, in the get suits. part of a cut of a move and then the second part of the cut of the move and yeah. that way it's able to look cinematic yeah, yeah. but i mean Raphael's like rooftop kicking looks really impressive yeah like when he's he's doing his angry footloose dance yeah there's a and there's a couple good tornado kicks in there that yeah. are, i mean i mean i couldn't do that without a suit on <laughs> so i mean i'm impressed uh and, hard. Uh, yeah for sure and so, for me, all of those pieces really, really work together in crazy ways. And so, uh, I am going to say, yeah, I like it a bunch. And I'm going to say it's not just because I was 10 and in the demo. Uh, I'm going to say it's because it really is just, it's pretty good filmmaking uh, for a kid's movie. So, there you go, dear listener. Our biases are generally pro. We're going to move on to a little part of the show we like to call Expanding the Syllabus. Dalton, can you explain what that's all about? Well, as we've already alluded to, this movie might actually get discussed in a film studies course. But this is where we try try to deliver on the promise of the show where we talk about the movies you wouldn't discuss in a film studies course and and bring a little bit of academic rigor uh to to fair that might be considered lesser than uh more more artistic things uh but again this has come up in a class you actually took dustin it is um i took a ninja film course uh-huh. because you know me yeah, you well you did your dissertation on kung fu film right right and so uh this movie was combined with stuff like the octagon with chuck norris uh kamui gaiden and uh, goemon a couple japanese mm-hmm. um more contemporary japanese ninja movies and uh a shinobi heart over blade uh the really kind of cgi the 300 school of filmmaking mm-hmm. uh, kinds of films uh, there and uh, really really it was a lot of fun as a course and did so you do Ninja Assassin we did do Ninja Assassin yeah, yeah. which was a hoot a movie um, goes. but all four of the Turtles movies were on the syllabus all four that of them you bought them in a little pack um, they had four film favorites oh, yeah. you sometimes find yep. these at yep. a Walmart uh, at a Walmart or yeah. whatever and it I was a, the, the, the first three and then the first animated film TMNT with yeah. Larry Fishburne doing narration uh, which oh, is, oh yeah I forgot about that that's from like what 07 it's something like that yeah we've got Patrick's Stewart as the big bad who's not such a big bad but yeah so uh in a very very specific course ninja film yeah uh, you might encounter some ninja turtles otherwise probably less well, likely arthur and i are going to make the case that you could talk about it in another context i think i agree do so um go first arthur yeah well dalton and i are co-teaching this semester so i'm gonna take care of the first half and he's gonna yep. round out the rest of the semester so i'm gonna take it up How to fall I didn't get invited slash to the spring break because you didn't reply to the text messages yep. that's why you know what i have a life so do we i i, I just always what'd you do about all afternoon movies. what i slept <laughs> <laughs> honestly I feel that. Hey, you know what? <laughs> Good answer. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so I, I, I do think the other class where this shows up is an independent film studies class. Uh, and looking at it, as we already said, it was one of the highest grossing independent films for around a decade. Um, and the fact that it was based on kind of this fledgling IP uh, that was based off of a comic book, but also kind of based more out of the TV series, which was uh, done to sell toys through Playmates. Um is that right? Playmates? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Playmates, yeah. Um, they, uh, you know, it was kind of one of those things where, like, they were worried if it was going to work because it came out and it was darker than the cartoon. And they were like, um, and people ate it up um, because it worked so well. Uh, so I think that's what we would do. I think this would be a I'm going to kind of cover the history of indie cinema. And I'm going to go all the way back to Charlie Chaplin. Uh, we got to talk about United Artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to talk about how the studio system was uh, dictating budgets and limiting artistic freedom and how some creators kind of got fed up with that. And Charlie Chaplin kind of led the way to develop uh, United Artists uh, where they could work and create. Uh, well, look, you can't be a little pervert all the time. Sometimes you actually have to do something that meaningfully contributes to society. You can't be a sex pest 24 hours a day. You're right. Um, and so uh, we'll, we'll talk about United Artists, and, and that leads eventually to uh, the development of Simp. Uh, the Society of Independent Motion Picture Producers. Right. Um, <laughs> That's which, again, <laughs> works... Isn't language fun? <laughs> <laughs> uh, which uh, was a, a work from Pickford, Charlie Chaplin, Walt Disney, Orson Welles, Goldwyn, Selznick, Corda, and Wonger. 
uh, who uh, many of the artists uh, from United Artists um, formed the society to kind of push back against uh, the control that was held by the studio system uh, to find a way to make movies and, and get those done. So we'd really probably set up the history, and, and obviously this is just scratching very, very, very uh, shallowly at the surface of this history. Uh, but that's where we would start. That's what we'd talk about. Uh, from there, we're going to talk about a movie uh, from 1953 called Little Fugitive, uh, direct, co-directed by Ray Ashley, Morris Engel, and Ruth Orkin, uh, which is the first film, uh, independent film, to be nominated for original screenplay at the Oscars. Also a big touchstone for the French New Wave boys, including mm. Truffaut, um, who were inspired by it to uh, work on stuff such as The 400 Blows. Um, and so that's kind of the first movie we would probably get to. Uh, from there, we're going to kind of start moving into the 60s. Uh, we got to talk about the Paramount case and where that leads uh, the disruption of the monopoly that the studio system held uh, in the, is it 60s, right? It is the 60s, yeah. yeah. Um, which kind of begin to... The, the Paramount Accord's 47, but they don't actually start enforcing it until the 60s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, that's where we get the breakup of this monopoly formally, uh, which leads into the new Hollywood. Uh, around the same time, we start talking about exploitation cinema. We got to talk about Roger Corman and, sure. and all that he does, um, not just as a director, but also the sheer wealth of people who came into work under him uh, as, you know, from from Jack Nicholson to God, the Godfather, uh, Coppola, Coppola as well. Uh, and just the sheer number of people he impacted and influenced and gave a break to uh, there. Uh, but I think we would watch Little Pet Shop of Horrors, the original, mm-hmm. um, which is a lot of fun uh, and a different twist on that story, a little more nihilistic in its approach. And just a real testament to that guerrilla style. Hey, we got a weekend. Let's get this done. Style of filmmaking that Corman was known for on the and independent circuit. Baby Nicholson. And Baby Nicholson. Uh, from there, we're going to talk about George Romero. We've got to talk about Night of the Living ooh, Dead ooh, 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 uh, ooh. and have some fun uh, starting up the zombie movement, uh, you know, possibly, you know, telling uh, thematic stories that may or may not have been intentional, but uh, it's important nonetheless. Uh, from there, we've got to talk about Halloween and John Carpenter, Deborah Hill Productions. And, and again, you know, before Turtles, Halloween is another of the biggest independent films of all time. Um, and so, again, of note, uh, We'll move that to David Lynch and talk Eraserhead uh, and talk about how his success there attracted one Mel Brooks who helped back the Elephant Man, which uh, did very, very well uh, critically and publicly. You can talk uh, about the AFI Lynch. Institute a little bit. Yeah. So uh, we'll, we'll get into all that. We got to talk, though, and this is kind of the delineation because I probably wouldn't get into uh, so much the experimental art house style directors, the Kenneth Angers and stuff. Uh, but we probably would talk a little bit about John Waters, who kind of mm-hmm. blends those two worlds in a way that's a little more accessible than some, but also still very, 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 very transgressive. Um, and, and so uh, I think he's another kind of touchstone here culturally and cinematically to hit. Uh, then we got to talk about Robert Redford, and we got to talk about Sundance, and we got to talk about the development of the Sundance Film Festival, and eventually the Sundance Institute. Uh, so this would probably be the last portion of my class. Uh, we would get into Soderbergh, uh, a big staple of that '80s and '90s independent cinema with Sex, Lies, and Videotape, which kind of made him a household name uh, in many ways. Uh, we got to talk about the Coen Brothers. Uh, we'd probably go with Blood Simple to watch there, uh, which introduces us to. Uh, you know, that's not their first movie, but it's a big one, but it also brings in uh, Francis McDormand, who they would continue to work with, really develops and shows that style that they have captured for the last almost 40 years. Um, but also talk about that kind of school around them of, of Billy Bob and um, Sam Raimi, who these artists that were all working and living together, influencing one another throughout time. And that kind of collaborative point within independent film where all these people are working together, talking to each other and influencing one another. Uh, I think you have to talk about Kevin Smith and you got to talk about clerks. Sure. Another, you know, real shoestring tight $10,000 budget, which just absolutely blows up at Sundance and becomes, I think the boy who would be king of podcasting. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But it really does do this thing where once again, kind of in a way that, um, the uh, not Florida Project, but the Tangerine mm-hmm. kind of re-emphasizes anybody can make a movie. Yeah. 
Kevin Smith does this. And this is something that right around this time, uh, Coppola, who you've already mentioned, starts talking about, right? The democratization of, of filmmaking. And he, he starts having these interviews in the, I guess it's closer to the, the aughts as digital filmmaking is coming about. Yeah. Uh, it's, that's still a connecting point, I feel like, yeah. is him talking about, like, anybody can make movies now, yeah. which I, you're right, Sean Baker does f- f- sort of fulfill that promise along with a lot of other really talented yeah. people. Yeah, him. I mean, talk about uh, It's Always Sunny, you know. Sure, yeah. That group who just walked into Best Buy, bought a camera, and filmed a pilot. Yeah. And give us our show, please. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I think that, you know, Kevin Smith really feels like the beginning of a certain line of thinking in that mm-hmm. regard. Um, and then I think I would end it here at Tarantino to talk Reservoir Dogs, the movie that every other director after him wanted to make in the early 90s. Uh, Gosh, just, can you imagine being one of the the Sundance people who had to, all, all the bad versions of Reservoir Dogs? That did you, you had to screen? Did you had to screen in the, <laughs> the 90s? Ugh. Yeah, God. it's embarrassing. And then Pulp Fiction probably followed, you know, even worse. Like, yeah. oh, God, come on. You're not you're not going to get it. Um, but, yeah, I, I think kind of hitting those heavy hitters there at the nine uh, in the 90s. Ending with Tarantino feels like a natural place for me to end off and pass the baton um, because there's probably not a bigger name in independent film yeah. in the 90s um, than Quentin Tarantino. And I think uh, a good amount of time would be devoted to looking at him, looking kind of his background, his history really getting maybe into some more tour stuff as well. Uh, but really his focus on what it means to be an independent artist and how that looks and, and the relationships that would come from that. Very good. Very good. Thank you very much for that. Mr. Arthur Gordon, Mr. Dalton Stewart, what does part two of this semester look like? So that's about where I would pick it up. We'd probably do a little, not even little, but we definitely need to take a detour to be like, Hey, we sure talked a lot about a lot of white guys so far. Why is that? Uh, we have to examine that. We definitely look, take a look at just another girl on the HRT, watermelon women, these, these uh, mm-hmm. independent films coming from marginalized voices that, you know, just just now that these movies are starting to become a big deal and are starting to be considered part of the canon. You know, they kind of they were appreciated within their circles in their day, but kind of faded into obscurity for a little bit just because mm-hmm. of where who's doing talking about canonization, movies and yeah. canonization, how that, and that's what we talk about, a lot, how canonization works. Uh, we talk about, you know, the history of more marginalized folks within uh, filmmaking, but then we would talk about indie going blockbuster because that is a thing that happens with, with QT and, and with, we talk about Miramax and you know, the people who ran Miramax and we talk about QT, try to kill Uma Thurman. Like we're, we're, we can't shy away from what happens. Just like, you know, I'm sure Arthur's going to remind you that Charlie Chaplin was kind of a douchebag. <laughs> Uh, so we'd have to talk about that, but we would talk about how, you know, Miramax starts getting all these properties and really marketing them at the level of the big studios. And we sort of then look at how that same thing happens with A24, with Blumhouse, how you have these these studios today that are really following that same model of just being distribution houses or when they enter into, uh, you know, a relationship with an artist that, that there is it's because they've you know maybe distributed something of theirs already mm-hmm. and they're they're a proven name for them uh but of course we're going to look at uh, quentin tarantino pulp fiction and, and how big that was uh we'd also talk a little bit more about soderbergh probably and sort of his how, how he's continued that indie spirit throughout his career but yeah we, we'd look at tmnt and what a huge you know seismic moment it was for indie filmmaking and then 10 years later nine years later you have the blair witch project another huge huge moment uh, and then we'd look at things like my big fat greek wedding uh, uh juno uh these things are huge you, 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 it's easy to forget how big juno was right and that mm-hmm. that it's an, you know that's a fox you know fox searchlight movie though um crouching tiger another one that it's kind of easy to forget that that's actually an independent production you know it existed outside the studio system they managed to find find lanes for it within you know sort of mainstream north american film distribution we talk about weirdo passion projects like the passion of the christ of course which made well more money than god uh (laughs) as it were but uh that's a weird one huh yeah but you got to talk about it because it's huge Mm -hmm. and that's you know that is the the oddity of artists passion project is a passion projects is sort of at the root of indie filmmaking sometimes even if it does end up with big names doing their own thing for their own reasons you you still have to admit there is a through line between that that impulse to 
damn it, I'm going to do it myself uh, between, you know, sex lies and videotape and, and the passion. There's there's a three line there. Uh, and then again, we, we talk about Bloomhouse and, and Get Out and uh, Whiplash and the sort of their their runs at both uh, critical acclaim. You know, they've, they've it's easy to forget Bloomhouse has done a couple Oscar movies. Mm-hmm. So we, we'd sort of talk about their their run at our, our artistic legitimacy within the industry, but then their, their very populist runs at getting getting horror audiences, genre audiences into the theater to see what they're going to do. Uh, and I think that's probably where we where we would end is sort of this middle ground that you have. Uh, obviously, not every Blumhouse movie is Get Out, but they have you know they've got Split, uh, which is pretty huge. They you know they basically Whiplash, yeah, Whiplash, yeah. but they they resurrect uh, Shyamalan's career basically, yeah. yeah. Uh, but then you've also yeah. got A twenty four really sort of making blockbusters for cinephiles if that makes sense sort of trying to get that same level of of hype going around their their releases uh, I, I think it's interesting the sort of mini majors that you have this going on with with blumhouse and a24 so yeah. i think that's an interesting place to, to end it as sort of this in between independent and blockbuster i think the other thing i wanted to mention i forgot to was the idea of how in the 90s independent cinema kind of became a mode slash genre of its own absolutely was so easy to kind of lambast as oh you know capital i capital m indie movie and people knew what that meant well right it's like indie Indie wood yeah right yeah Yeah. Yeah. just like indie music and the the early aughts as as well as like mumblecore in the early 2010s yeah Yeah, it it definitely became a thing (laughs) unto itself Uh, and i think juno is one of those movies that really feels kind of it's it's got so many like kind of names in it that it, it doesn't quite feel like an indie movie even mm-hmm. even when it was released like all those everybody that was yeah. in it had been working yeah and was like sort of a known quantity um dustin how would you teach tmnt are you going to teach a class on ninjas uh well no i'm not going to teach a class on ninjas i'm going to teach two different classes i want to teach the uh, graduate level lab for your guys's class and <laughs> okay. so I, I wasn't going to do this at all but i just listened to you guys talk and i thought that you know there's that other mode of independent filmmaking which is the experimental mode absolutely and arthur made some reference to that and so thinking about ways in which short film and other experimental processes were also part of independent filmmaking there. So for your course, for undergrads, they would also, if a graduate wanted to take the course as well, there'd be a lab, and these are the additional films that they would watch here. Uh, Sydney's uh, Visionary Film would probably be our primary text uh, for that section of the class. But we'd begin with Robert Flory and uh, some of his experimental filmmaking, which works against some of the flow of Hollywood filmmaking, especially thinking about that Hollywood extra film he made, Mm -hmm. and maybe looking a little bit at the screenplay he tried to uh, produce for Frankenstein. Moving from him into my Darren, who is just a huge, huge uh, force, uh, what would later become the new American cinema. And so she is like an older generation, which leads us to Jonas Mikas and the new American cinema. That's where your Kenneth Angers come in. And Jonas Mikas probably watched Lost, 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 probably watch uh, Scorpio Rising uh, for that. Also, in terms of the connection with your uh, your John Waters stuff, uh, there is a more experimental version of that. That's Cooker. And probably Hold Me While I'm Naked is probably the movie that we would watch for that, which is as bonkers as it's title suggests uh and to look at that maybe look at the structuralist filmmakers a little bit of hollis frampton in there and uh just again to think about these other modes of experimental filmmaking uh moving forward into the digital age video moshing and some of these other techniques uh, i think all of that would be a lot of fun and so i would do that for grads as the lab version of you guys's class now the class i actually wanted to propose before i heard you guys awesome awesome stuff there is uh i would be a much more undergraduate kind of course thinking about adaptation and when it works and when it doesn't work and to pair a couple different kinds of movies that work and don't work and sort of begin to suss out and ask questions as to why so the first example obviously is Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles which I do think is an adaptation that does indeed work of an intellectual property and then to look at it next to Canon's Masters of the Universe and why that film version which has just as much up and coming star heft uh, which has just as much uh, existing star heft uh, I mean Langella's in this movie right yeah. uh, so there, there's a lot of things that ought to work and the popularity of the He-Man character is all there and yet for whatever reason that movie completely falls to the wayside then looking at your goofy loony uh, just wacky science fiction comic book adaptations uh, looking at Howard the Duck mm. versus Guardians of the Galaxy. Mm, because fine. you know, in terms of uh, source material, they're very, very similar. Yeah. Guardians completely works, and Howard the Duck 
kind of doesn't. And so what is it about that? And then uh, this is the one that's a, sort of the harder fit here. But I'm thinking about James O'Barr's The Crow as it's adapted into this, again, sort of gritty revenge story. And uh, looking at Alec Baldwin at The Shadow. Uh, okay, yeah. And, yeah. and, and thinking about the how... sort of neo-noir, right, gothic movies. So there, 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 there's some aesthetic sort of similarities between those two movies. And they're roughly around the same time period. Because you say, what, three, four-year difference? Right. Yeah. And yet The Shadow generally does not have the same kind of effect. I don't yeah. know if it's a terrible movie, but it's, it, not. It, 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 it's not great. It's not The Crow. It is that, great. It, it is great. Have we... God, we did a show on it, and I mean, like I said, no, there's it's a lot, been a long time ago. There's a lot I like about it, but it does not succeed to nearly the extent I think we can say subjectively. Uh, although you know, individual mileages may vary uh, regarding that film. It doesn't do the same thing that The Crow seems to get yeah. done. And what is it about that? And to sort of begin to suss out what is the sort of sin qua non without this, it just doesn't work, mm. moving from an intellectual property into uh, this kind of filmmaking process. And what is it? What is the code that gets cracked when it gets cracked? Uh, that you don't have Howard the Duck, but you have Gardens of the Galaxy. That you don't have Masters of the Universe, but you have Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. You don't have The Shadow, but you have The Crow. And uh, so that would be the module within maybe kind of a screenwriting course where um, you might do that. So uh, those are my thoughts and my friend's thoughts. And your syllabus just got much longer, friends. But I think now is a time that we get down to business. It's business. It's business time. I don't know what you're trying to say. You're trying to say it's time for business. It's business time. Ooh, it's business. It's business time. Were you talking about the shadow or the crow? The crow. Oh, I was talking about the crow. Okay, we've talked about the crow though, right? We've talked yeah. about the crow and the that shadow. Was a long yeah, the time shadow was very recently. Yeah, that yeah. was last. That, that's what I thought you meant. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. the crow would have been. The crow was yeah pretty Eight early years on. ago. Yeah, you were still like, yeah on the west yeah. side of Norman. So yeah, way back a long, in the day. Long time. Yeah, before we had sound equipment, I think. Yeah, I think hey. we were recording on a mic on a Mac. Oh, yeah. I think we had a better setup by that point because I think it was post Cabin in the Woods. Was it that we did the crow? Yeah, I think it was post Cabin in the Woods, and that was sort of right as we were getting a decent setup. It's around seventy eight or eighty. We get the sound system. Okay, I'm getting too okay. old for this. Uh, we are getting too old for this. That's a fact. <laughs> All right, friends. Well, I think we need to get to down to business and do some analysis. Yeah, you already did that on Teenage Mutant Ninja <laughs> Turtles. Well, I mean, uh, we got to do it. Um, what are our analytical handles? I, I guess we could talk about family. Yeah, fathers sure. and sons. I mean, this is sort of the thematic kind of thing, and I think the movie here is exceptionally wholesome. I mean, this is where we know it's definitely a fathers and sons movie uh, addressed to children. Yeah, because there isn't the sort of obscene father reunion thing. I mean, even though uh, certainly uh, Jurassic Park or other Steven Spielberg films are um, children are intended members of that audience, it does seem to be a bit more mature in its sort of resonance with absence of fathers and those kinds of things. This is just... Those movies feel like they probably speak more to the dads in the audience yeah. rather than mm. the kids. Yeah. yeah right. This yeah. says, you, yeah, the obscene father is Shredder and he should be kicked into a garbage truck. Right. Right. Yeah. 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 And there's, so... There's no reconciliation or no, no, you know, confrontation with the obscene father outside of a physical one. Right. And and so, I mean, I, I do find that that is a bit, uh, I don't know, I'm not going to say milk toast, but it's 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 just, it's a bit more surfacey there, mm-hmm. yeah. you know? And again, that's that's where one of the places, I think it's probably a good choice. It's, you know, Splinter's got that line, all fathers care for their sons, right? Danny's like, oh, my dad's not around, he doesn't care about me. Right. Uh, and, you know, Splinter has that line, which yeah, I think there's some truth to that in the film. I don't know, you're right, though, it's kind of milk toast. Like, well, no, Danny's still got an absent father, like... Okay, he cares, and when when he shows up at the end of the movie, he's so glad Danny's been found. Mm-hmm. But I mean, he's he's still set up a circumstance where his kid felt like he couldn't go home, right? And and, that's, yeah. and the circumstances for lots of kids are just simply just not that. Sure, you know, I mean, the thing is, is all fathers don't. You know, yeah. that's the thing is that what Splinter says is just you know categorically not true. Yeah, bingo. But that being said, it is it's good for what it's doing there. It sounds nice. It does sound nice. And uh, again, this is. The the wholesomeness of the 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 the, the movie, I think, is it, despite its sort of grittiness, and I think that that's a good um, way to cut through the palette there a little bit. Yeah, I mean, and I also think it is an echo of you know, I think late eighties. We're still fighting for the picture of the wholesome single family. You know, divorces rates are still you know low and frowned upon, and 
you know, the breaking up of the family is a much more taboo type of thing. Yeah, it was Kramer versus Kramer's the 80s. Yeah, we're still, like, figuring out how to talk about divorce as a society. So that feels like kind of a last echo of that 50s American dream ideal family, nuclear family process. Yeah, absolutely. Which these guys, you know, writing this movie probably would have been heavily bought into. Mm Mm-hmm. But then the other side of it is, so I begin with that sort of wholesomeness piece and that sort of analytical theme there. The other thing we need to talk about is a, a palette and aesthetics. You know, we do have a little bit of a four-letter words coming out of Raphael's mouth uh, throughout the film, which I have to remember as a child. Uh, occasionally in uh, elementary school, you would have in small rural schools, you'd have just days that they we, we, we wouldn't have class, you know, and we'd show a movie. Yep. Uh, there's three or four days that, that would happen almost every year. And Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was one of them. It was, ours was always just the same movie. What was the movie? Uh, Iron Will for a long time. Oh, wow. So, you know, we, we had these days in, uh, like, you know, more urban public schools, but they had to massage the truth a little bit of what they were doing. So we watched Gattaca in biology in, in middle school. There was a tie-in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Glory and history of class. Yeah. class. Yeah, of yeah. course, glory. <laughs> No, no, we we, we had once no we got to middle and high school, it was a lot of uh, well, post two thousand one Pirates was a big one. Mm-hmm. Remember the Titans was always big, but for a long time, I, I think we just own a VHS copy of Iron Will at my school. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the only VHS on campus. I'm pretty sure that's all we watched in grade school. That's fun. Uh, and this was a movie that we watched, and we all giggled very much, you know, uh, when um, Raphael would swear, and uh, which is fine, um, fun whatever fifth you know fifth grade kind of behavior there but what's interesting to me is that the movie is very very dark and uh, if you watch the uh, series on Netflix the toys that made us and it's talking about the sort of the development of this intellectual property um there's an initial reaction by um the various CEO movers and shakers of the property the financiers here. and financiers yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that uh this film has totally missed the mark this is going to be an absolute disaster because yeah, it's too so dark too, too gritty dark. And what is it about this particular kind of darkness that works for a kid is what I want to know. Why does it, why is it not the cartoon and yet totally successful? I mean, well, we're, we're talking about this movie on the, the weekend of the Batman's release. So kind of a, a good time to be considering this question, right? What is, what is this obsession that we have with uh, packaging children's entertainment within a, a darker wrapper? And now with TMNT, it's sort of a reverse process right it starts out as this dark riff on uh frank miller stuff and it's deliberately sort of goofing on self-serious comic books yeah uh, and then it gets adapted into this this very colorful poppy cartoon show and then as as we've already talked about the movie does sort of manage to thread the needle between these two things and i i think with a lot of these properties you you have it happening with to greater or lesser degrees right the burton batman uh is sort of its own thing that's definitely different from the Adam West stuff. Uh, and then the comic, the cartoon show in the nineties, like takes Batman and, and tries to do what Burton's doing, but make it a little bit more kid friendly. Uh, and then, you know, Schumacher comes around and does what Adam West did with the look of Tim Burton. Um, not Adam West, but you know, that sixties. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. Dozier does. Thank yeah. You. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's this always this, this push and pull with, with characters that get a long enough life. And I think even with, I haven't seen the Bay films, but I've seen, you know, clips and trailers and such. So those definitely feel like they're trying to be a little bit more rude than, uh, the 1990 team and T. So it always feels like, you know, this last 30 years of the IPification of, of Hollywood, especially the stuff that's made for kids that there is this you know you've got Zack Snyder's Justice League on the one hand and Avengers Endgame on the other right like these these two two different kinds of epic but one is very much trying to be self-serious and for grown-ups and the other is uh saying no this is for children obviously I want to circle back to that in a minute uh, I I think to your point because I think there's something interesting there mm-hmm. uh, to your point though I I I think on the one hand, it's 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 dark, but it's dark in the sense that there's just a lot of night stuff, mm-hmm. and New York City itself is just a na- <laughs> naturally yeah, it's, a gr- it's a gross New York. Nineteen eighty nine yeah. New York is is a much different. It's hard to remember that there was a time when New York was not the tourist destination. It wasn't of the, the Disney Store yeah. place? But guess what? They they can put the Disney Store there if they want. The place still smells like pee. Yeah, at least that's what people <laughs> tell me. Yeah. But, I, I, you know, I think there's this idea that, you know, in the 80s, early 90s, New York was not a they were, had, fun place to go sometimes. Yeah, haven't, very, hadn't started the uh, beautification project yeah. yet. Um, and so I think it's, it's just a city that naturally lends itself, especially in 89, to being dark. 
And mm-hmm. even though a lot of this is on sets, I, I think that just kind of transcends the film. Uh, but even in the cartoon, I mean, obviously the turtles themselves are very colorful characters. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff that just happens at night mm-hmm. just because of the sheer ninja of mm-hmm. them being out and about uh, kind of lends itself to being night. And so I, I think that's kind of a, a distinction to make. Um, but I think there is something, you know, I think the target audience, you said you're seven, right? And this is kind of coming back to your point. Um, you know, that target demographic of, let's say, seven to 11 year olds, they want to feel a little more adult. Yeah. I'm, and hey, so I'm 10 now. I got double digits. Yeah, I'm serious. I think I like stuff for grownups. And so, yeah, by the time I am 10, that's true for me, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah I'm so in the demo. Yeah. I yeah. think this is kind of biting into something like that, that, you know, these kids aren't toddlers they're not yeah. five-year-olds yeah. you know our, our target demographics a little older and a little wiser and so i think that kind of naturally lends itself into them i think it's also kind of just pointing to a pop culture shift because i mean we're about to go heavy into grunge mm-hmm. and, and really set the stage for the 90s and gen x um but i think it also speaks to a larger question or, or just kind of thing i just have been thinking about is these sorts of movies don't exist. I, I feel like live action children's movies are, are targeted for six and under now. Yeah. I, I think of your Clifford's mm-hmm. or your, you know, or, uh, your I can't even, yeah, they're not really your Disney remakes. Yeah. Live action remakes. Yeah. Nah, those are for yeah, Disney. Heads those of are all for ages, well, like. that's probably like, one through the six and then 35 through are, yeah. are the Disney remakes. But yeah, it I feels like these movies, they're very colorful, very vibrant, very loud, but they're also not, I, I don't know that, uh, a good one that we talked about was the what was the the kid and the the sword. Oh, the boy who would be king. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, the kid who would be king. That feels like the kind of movie that a seven to ten year old would really latch on to. Yeah, it's think. a little darker. It's a little more serious. Yeah. but yeah, you're right. It's it's a genre of picture that just has been eaten by superhero movies. Yeah, it's just it's like well, you're just going to take your seven year old the same just, thing you're taking your fourteen year old. There's too. no like, let's say, I, I wouldn't even call it hard PG, but there's no like PG live action action adventure films for I'm, that you're seven to me, ten year old demographic anymore you're making me think I mean, of journey to the Spy Cent- kids kind yeah, of journey to the center maybe. of the earth but again we're talking about movies that are 15 years old 10 years old mm-hmm. yeah i mean we're yeah you're we're really struggling to come up with something that's and not a marvel movie or I, a i wonder if it speaks to just a cultural economic thing mm-hmm. where you know kids want to see it but the parents can't take them or you know i don't know what that is or why you know the focus is on the younger audience, or you know who greenlit Clifford the Big Red Dog versus whatever else. Yeah. But I think there's just an interesting cultural shift now that we don't have the same sort of movie. But I, I do think there is something probably to that for a child who is seven mm-hmm. to ten who sees that and be like, yeah, it makes them feel maybe a little more mature, a little older. That I got to go see the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, you know. And, and there's something kind of cool about that too. There's a girl in the gang in this movie. April. Sometimes you're the girl in a movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and April is definitely fulfilling that role. Uh, I think the movie does right by her more often than not, though. It sets her up with Casey, which kind of sucks. Uh, Casey, uh, another great Becca observation during this movie. She Casey does something very Casey, and she goes, big man just needs constant validation from the woman, though, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, he does. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, he this does. woman, he like cannot stop antagonizing well that feels like another very juvenile like that's yeah, a very a fourth boy. grade yeah, yeah. relationship yeah yeah this I, is this is this is for you know 10 yeah, year olds it's written yeah. at a level 10 year olds can understand i yeah. have a crush on you i need to throw rocks at you yep yeah. yeah 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 and i but i think other than that like other than her deciding that she's into it i, I think it does right by her like she gets she gets to let her boss have it more than once and uh, they beg her to come back you yeah, know. she gets to be strong. She's, determined com- she's competent. Yeah, challenging she's the law, which is a fun. Oh my god, her fights with the commissioner, great, great, love it. Like yeah. the, the thorn in the side that she gets to be is a really fun character beat for her. Judith Hogue yeah. would have been a good Clarice Starling. That's my yeah. take. I, I think you're right. No, I, yeah, I, I think she would have been fine at it. Yeah, uh, I do love that they go ahead and go with the iconic uh, yellow uh, raincoat for the one scene there, but that's only yeah, go with the one time. I mean that, and that's one of those like early instances of like fan service. Right. Yeah. That, yeah. That really kind of works there. Same thing with the cowabunga line. They at the had end. A, a yellow yeah. outfit. You know about this? 
Judith Hoke said, "No way." That oh, like, like a full shit. yellow yeah. jumpsuit. Yeah. Like, no way. It looks like trash. Yeah, good. Yeah, yeah. That's which not yeah, it. it probably would not have worked. Uh, but you know, you're right though. It is definitely think, sort of fun, fan service. Well, in that an I think even way. Casey Jones getting the the kind the mask. of cartoon accurate mask is yeah. also kind of feels like that. And the turtles don't get much deviation from their kind of animated selves. Mm-hmm. They mm-hmm. maintain their colored bandanas. They don't have their belt buckles with their initial on them, but <laughs> that's fine. That's fine. That's it probably fine. would look a little weird. I, I, I'm I'm okay with that choice. <laughs> if you were a ninja, you probably wouldn't want any sort of identification marker. It on seems you. like that's yeah. not a great idea there. No, it seems like it's a bad idea to be a large turtle as well. But you know, you do what you can. I love the the running gag uh, for all the New Yorkers. And, and that there's just like giant turtles. Yeah, it's a turtle. Uh, it, what no. was that? It's, it's, it looked like a giant turtle. So anyway, you go to LaGuardia. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's great. It's an excellent. This bit. city, you know. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. 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 And that's just like oh, this, yeah, weird stuff the happens all the time. Unflappability of New Yorkers. Yeah. We it's love like, it. One of the all-time great movie bits. It, it is very very fun. Um, I, I really uh, we've talked. Do, do we have anything else to say about the farmhouse? I know we've talked about it, but like formalistically speaking, I think it's really interesting. Just as Arthur, you talked about being the the moment the darkest the moment where it's darkest before dawn yeah. right and again avengers age of ultron's got this moment it definitely feels like a fixture of you've got going to um rivendale and then uh the first lord of the rings movie like this feels like such a staple of fiction this this moment where everybody gets to have some character beats uh do we have any thoughts on i know we've talked about it a little bit i just think it's interesting I, again i, I a children's ip movie didn't have to go this hard yeah but it did, and and I think there is it, it shows a love to storytelling and movie going and the characters. It this could have easily been an eighty minute movie that's just filled with really bad fight scenes that's very colorful, and I think the overall approach that they take to this movie shows a love and care for the characters. And I think those are the moments, these quiet moments, mm-hmm. whether they're in the lair, you know, meditating with master splinter and we get to see the, who the turtles are, you know, and they start dancing and goofing off while splinter's trying to meditate it's great stuff to that moment in the, the barn where we really do get to see them kind of hard in their sleeve, inner soul exposed type moment. I, I think it's just really fascinating for a film like this to do that and it's hard to imagine many iep movies doing that i I know that sounds a bit jaded but i I, again it's hard to imagine a extremely low budget independent studio just picking up a ip property and being like hey let's make this a movie we're gonna do this well Well, it feels like every ip's been bought up at this point right it's like what is even out there for an indie studio to an a24 or a a blue mouse to try or you know even a a studio smaller studios that you know aren't coming to mind right now lionsgate yeah yeah gosh well they're kind of big now at this point i feel like legendary was that a one legendary is it well legendary is still pretty big i mean they co-produce the the um the monster well books. they're saving films and they kind of oh, work in this you know yeah, operating okay, that's this interesting that's low sort of budget territory area. but to your earlier point arthur i think one of the things that farmhouse scene does um that is quite a bit more mature than you'd expect from a children's film is it shows a range of possible emotional reactions so you see yeah. the sort of obvious yeah. repression from a casey jones character you see the uh, overwhelming sort of depression slash shame that leonardo experiences you see the way in which busyness is a way to deal with it for donatello distraction right? and then yeah. journaling and reflection uh for april yeah. right um all of those sort of reactions to uh again a real emotional tragedy i mean her business and her dad's um, you know, sort of antique sword has gone up in flames. Yeah. So she's experienced just as much emotional loss as the rest of the gang has. And the ways in which a, uh, a movie like this uh, in, in another filmmaker's hands would be very much just, you know, we're all mad and sad and, you know, we're just going to hang out here. And we got Raphael, we want to go. And I've got, you know, Leonardo, we want to stay. And then we eventually work it out and go, right? And, and, and instead of, again, showing that sort of range of, Reaction. I'm going to say trauma, but it's really yeah, trauma's fine. I think is a term there, but a reaction yeah. to just the hard knocks of life in general. Um, it seems to be that it, it is mature in that sense that it shows a range, yeah. um, and I like that about that. Absolutely, I think there's something to the idea of yes, this is a children's movie, but be children aren't stupid and we don't need to speak down to yeah, them. It, yeah, it takes, and I think that's the important thing. It takes to take the away. audience intellectually seriously. Yeah. Uh, while having a, a part where Casey cuts up a carrot with a katana. Yeah. Pretty good 
pretty good comedy. We yeah. have pizza landing on Splinter's head. Yeah. yeah da 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 ninjutsu, right? Yeah. But we yeah. can still do that, you know, schlocky, silly stuff and still have heart and a little yeah. bit of thought. Yeah. Uh, is this movie or TMNT as a whole, either, either one, take your pick, is it trafficking in Orientalism? So, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, the, the, the fast answer is yeah. Splinter. Splinter. I mean, wh- what we what you've got is overdubbing, uh, de- clearly overdubbed the uh, the one well, the one of the two Japanese actors in the movie, maybe both of them. Yeah. And and, and there's really just how do you deal with the martial arts in an American context? Right. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, in, in a lot of ways, there's there's an attempt, at least, because. Splinter does learn his. I mean, Splinter's a Japanese rat. He's Japanese American. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, he's he's an immigrant. The, yeah, you know, him, his master and his the part her his master and his master's partner flew fled to their homeland because of uh you know pressures from a a rival ninja warlord, which is apparently a thing that was happening in what the, I guess it'd be the seventies. Well, just say what, another organized crime thing. Like? Yeah, what, what is the timeline? Because uh, this comes out in ninety. Uh, the, the turtles are fourteen to fifteen. There we go. Okay, so seventy five. So he probably comes to America in seventy three to seventy four, just after the death of Bruce Lee. There you go. And yet his master and his master's lover are dressed as if it's the Meiji era. Just want to <laughs> want to throw that out there. Anyway. But I, I do think, you know, I think there are some nods to some indigenization there, mm-hmm. you know, with, with Splinter. And, okay. but, the, but the use, and I think what's really fascinating about this, is the use of the ninjas is just not just the oriental uh, bad guy. Uh, which is mm. what Golden Harvest and other the Golden uh, Child. Well, I was saying the the Golden Harvest being the production company. Oh, sorry. And other I thought that was a movie. Uh, other Kung Fu and Wuxia production companies had done in China, in mm-hmm. Hong Kong especially, is when you have bad guys, they will be ninjas, they will be Japanese because you know we don't like those people. Yeah, sure. And so there was this sort of overwhelming thing about the movie Shinobi and a couple other films like that, in which you've got the heroic samurai for Japanese cinema, but uh, as far as using villains. Um, overwhelmingly, um, Chinese language cinema was using ninjas for that. And so taking that idea of ninjas as spies, uh, again, masters of invisibility, that kind of stuff, and then using it uh, as characteristics of either good guys or bad guys seems to be a gesture, I'll say. (laughs) I don't don't want to give it more credit than it deserves. Absolutely. absolutely. But I, I think it's a gesture in the right direction. Yeah. If that makes sense. And as you said, the short answer is yes. The longer answer is, uh, as with all things, it's complicated. Nuance, yeah, but... sure. Um, you did a lot of homework, Dustin. You've you've consumed basically every TMNT movie that there is. Almost. Uh, is this the best one? Yes. Well, by a wide margin? Yes. Gotcha. Significant. Yeah, this is, I think, by far the best. I think TMNT, the animated film, is very good. I was about to ask if that was good. the that's, other one. That's, part, that's, that's, that's number two, that's right? That's probably the and other one that It's in the same would. continuity as the first three live action movies. It is. It recall. is. And I think it really is very much um, the the Batman version of Ninja Turtles. Okay. Uh, very much so. Uh, in fact, Raphael becomes basically batman. the batman yeah for a while totally forgot about this and it's it's great um yeah. and also leonardo becomes a predator z- in the amazon for a while which is kind of fun but like the predator for justice yeah don't remember any of this i only <laughs> seen this movie the one time when uh, i was kind like of there 16 for it. uh so it's it's a lot of fun but what about those bay movies <sighs> yeah the less said the better I tell you what, I don't. I'm not mad about any of them. What I don't care for is, is I don't like the way he edits action. It's, well, he's. It's just his. Uh, it's not his movies. But, but, it's but, his but production it's, it's company. That house, it's that house style there. I that's feel you. Just yeah. like those Transformers movies. Yeah. And I just I don't care for that spatial sort of displacement yep. that happens. Yep. You know, when you're watching yeah. those. I just. And I mean, it, it, that's an aesthetic thing. And I think I do think the CGI doesn't have a lot of weight. Not everybody can be the fast franchise, you know, but right out of the shadows feels a little more fan servicey because we do get yeah. Bebop, we get Rocksteady, we get the Technodrome, we get Krang, we get Shredder. I'm told there's, there's a Judith Hogue uh, cameo in that film oh, as well, isn't yeah. there? But I didn't but, notice her. That may be right. I, I didn't finish that one, so I didn't quite I get to the end of theaters, it. But that one, that one feels a lot more like calling back to the cartoon series. Yeah. There's a lot of line dropping kind of stuff there yeah. that happens. So, yeah, that's fine. This movie posits, um, this is the last thought that I have, this movie posits a question that society often uh, posits and wishes it were the case. What if there were one guy who's cr- whose fault it was that crime happens? What if there were just one guy? 
and we did have to deal with any of the reasons that crime actually exists yeah uh, but I, I think it's it's fun, right? It's well, there's actually just one guy who's responsible for all the purse snatchings in New York, and it's the Shredder. Pretty how, cool. How about the Shredder as Darth Vader? Yeah, I, just, I am your father yeah, to I all just, of the, uh, the, the the little lost boys. I just love it, you know. Uh, I just want to throw that out there. Also, there's a weird Tarkovsky reference in this movie. Where? I, I, I missed I, it in the opening credits when you're walking, when you're when you're seeing that tracking shot going down the sewer and mm-hmm. the detritus in the sewer, which is in. Um, no nostalgia okay yeah yeah Uh, and also there's a bit kind of like it in stalker and so uh but this tracking shot with running water and this is very i mean it it, it, it's a one-to-one of the tarkovsky thing i I wonder if cinematographer john finner uh was a big tarkovsky fan also the director or not the director actually no 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 no, sorry he is uh no director of photography on muppet christmas carol (laughs) oh which is excellent dude knows how to work with puppets knows how to light them i guess i think uh yeah obviously this is a script written by people who've watched a movie or two because they they've got plenty of references Mm -hmm. to things yeah they they know what's up there all right, friends. Well, I think uh, we probably have reached a point at which we can render a verdict on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles shelf or trash. Um, our friendship is at stake. Go, Dalton. Yeah, it's important to in- independent cinema. Yeah, I think this is absolutely shelfable. Just like we, we, Arthur and I both like wanted to talk about the history of indie film and and where this sort of sits in that legacy. Yeah, I think it's super valuable as as far as you know keeping it around, not necessarily canonizing it, but uh, shelving it. Yeah, you know, you might want to have it around. It's not going to be on streaming forever. All right, thank you for that, Dalton. What do you say, Arthur? Yeah, it's a shelf. Uh, I, I, the, the, uh, the, these turtles are a big part of my DNA, and so uh, I would definitely put this on the shelf in that little four-pack you mentioned with the, the sequels and TMNT. Yep, absolutely. And I'm also going to say, I mean, it's been on my shelf for a long time, not just because I took the Ninja Film class, but I had the VHS. I know all the off in the distance baseball song. I mean, this is not just the nostalgia and just me personally. You probably know that Pizza Hut commercial by heart that's on the VHS, right? mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. I remember that one. I play right field, you know, the game's dragging on, but we could, we wow, could, yeah. wow, yeah. there he goes. Yeah, we, we could go, but I'm not going to do it. Um, nonetheless, yeah, it, it, I think it also is an important film and it's interesting in the intellectual conversation about indie cinema and also about inter, uh, intellectual properties. So yeah, it's, it's a big one for me and I just love it. So all there right. you go. A shelfing's all around and that is the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. We like indie action cinema. That's what it comes down to. All right. Well, Dalton, how can they be part of the conversation if they're listening right now, whoever yeah, they may I, be? I almost threw to Arthur right there, but then I remembered I hadn't done this part yet. I knew you were going to want to want me to do this. Do I have to? It's no. my contract, isn't it? No, you don't have to. I don't have to do it? This is all free. Well, I guess I'll do it anyway. <laughs> you know, for the love of the game. Uh, if you want to continue this conversation, you can send us a long-form uh, feedback at goodtrashgenrecast at gmail.com. That's the name of the podcast you're listening to at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to financially support us, you don't, God, no, you don't need to do that, but you might get a cool uh, Blu-ray from Arthur if you do want to do that. So you can go to patreon.com forward slash GTM, find out more about getting on our, our Blu-ray slash DVD mailing list. It's a pretty cool thing that we, we like to do. Um, lastly, if you're on Twitter, I can't imagine a good reason for doing that unless you want to watch world war three start in real time in which case then that's probably a good place to be uh if you you can find us over there at good trash media uh you can find links to this show links to the shows of people we like to collaborate with the praise down with heath and alex pretty much on a hiatus right now but have a wonderful back catalog and the wheel of randy which is still putting out great great content right now um you know that's a good place to be uh now i'm done now can we ask what we're doing next week we can arthur what we what, what movie we talking next time well, there's a little unintentional foreshadowing in there Dalton's is little bit, because uh, next oh. week we get ready for spring training and we head into the bottom of the ninth with Moneyball. He said for the love of the game. Ah, I'm very excited to talk about Moneyball. I haven't seen this movie since it first came out. I love Moneyball. Yeah, I know I like a lot of people like it. I like baseball and I like Moneyball. And I like Brad Pitt. I, I remember it being a really good Brad Pitt performance, so I'm excited about that. So there you go, dear listener. You keep watching, we'll keep talking, and we'll see you all next time. I'm not sure.